Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Thanks for listening, and here's the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah. My favorite villainous quality is general clamminess. When a villain is clammy, it's just weird. So. Don't, don't sweat around, Aaliyah. <laughs> my favorite villainous trait is when a villain is melodramatic, but pulls it off. My favorite villainous quality is like a really, really good evil laugh. Mm. I just, I feel like you can't go wrong. <laughs> my favorite villainous quality oh sorry i'm Kristen. and my favorite villainous quality is when the villain has a close emotional relationship with the protagonist and so mm. you've got a long history dating preferably right actually that's great but no that wasn't what i was gonna go for i'm ben my favorite villainous quality is probably i was gonna go with laugh but caitlin stole that <laughs> so i'm gonna go with the voice especially in like anime and cartoons you've got this villain with like this somewhat deep not super deep voice but is like epic and just anti-hero voice style you know what i'm talking about like fire lord ozai oh, i was yes, actually just exactly I was what i was saying yeah. <laughs> that it's okay. always luke skywalker it is always it's mark always hamill yeah he's really <laughs> yes. good at it i mean he's the joker and he's um, he's just good at it he's in castle in the sky and he's yep. also Oh, Ozai, so yeah i did not realize that Ozai. yeah <laughs> yeah did <laughs> your childhood just get all right. Well, ladies and gents, as you have guessed, we have a special guest on this week, Ben Grange, who is an agent at L. Perkins Literary Agency. Thanks for coming on, Ben. Thank you for having me. So we actually have something new going on. Lit Service is sponsored this season by Writer's Clearinghouse, which is a new manuscript evaluation service for authors, co-founded by our good friend here and longtime contributor Ben Grange. And since Ben's here, we were hoping he could tell us a little bit about it and how he got involved. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, again, thanks for having me on the episode today. So Writer's Clearinghouse started when I met my business partner at a writer's conference a couple of years ago. We got talking about mostly about the inefficiencies of the querying process and how frustrating it is for authors to submit their books and not hear anything back or get form rejection letters. And as an agent, I totally feel for that. And as an author, he was uh, significantly frustrated by that. So we just chatted about that for several hours. And then we kind of came up with some fun solutions that we could do to, you know, break those boundaries and, and bridge the gap between authors and agents. And I went home after the writer's conference and I emailed him and I said, I have this idea. If you want to join me, you can. If you don't, I'll just roll with it. But he decided that he he wanted to to join the endeavor. So we spent the next year and a half creating the website. And we launched and have been working on building our user base for the past couple of months. It looks like such a cool service. It's it's like what we're trying to do because that gap is the reason yeah. we started this podcast. We're like, we can't read a whole manuscript on a podcast, but we can at right. least do a first chapter. And so I feel like this is filling the, the same or like a bigger part the of the gap. Yeah, better. <laughs> 
Yeah. So I'm really excited about this service and I feel like it will be such a great thing for the community. Agreed. Definitely check that out, guys. Today we have an exciting episode. We did an episode last year about antagonists and villains, but ended up spending most of the time talking about what the differences between antagonists and villains were. Okay, not helpful. (laughs) (laughs) This time, we want to talk about what makes a good villain. The psychology of villainy, how to make our villain as interesting as the main character, but not more interesting, right? So, real fast then, what annoys us most about villains in current media? I think this is really subjective, and I don't know that anything we say is going to be law or helpful, but something that I always think about is that villains in media tend to have really overarching goals that are like world domination or or whatever, and I don't think a villain always needs to aim that high. They can have something smaller and have it matter more. Well, and I feel like if it is smaller, then it matters more to whoever is consuming (laughs) the media. I have that same problem. Mm -hmm. So another important question then is, Why do we want a villain at all? Because a lot of books, maybe they have the villain as nature or school. But what can a good villain do for you? (laughs) Or school. That sounds like an an ad campaign. Yeah. What can a good villain do for you? (laughs) I feel like the school part is maybe a little bit of Uh Elias' perspective. Leaking through right now. Why do we want villains? Why do we want an interesting villain? Or why do we just want a villain in general? Both. Let's go for both. As far as why we want an interesting villain, I think you need to have a villain that makes sense a little bit. Like, if you don't know why... Well, even if your villain is, like, chaos animated, like, we need to know that they are supposed to be chaos animated. Like, like the Joker, right? He doesn't always make sense, but he's going to do the same thing pretty much every time. You know he's going to cause the most amount of damage just for the heck of it. Okay, but what we've skipped, why do you want the Joker in the first place? Well, nothing's going to happen if you don't have something pushing against the character. You have to have some sort of opposition. I feel like villains are like the ones that actually kill people Mm -hmm. versus just being like the mean girl who spits in your hair. So not that I've ever had that happen. Are you the mean girl? (laughs) No! So bringing it back to sort of like the basics of writing a novel, you need conflict, right? Mm -hmm. You need conflict in order to actually make the story interesting. And villains are a useful way to provide that conflict. Yeah, that's a good point. Every every interesting villain presents interesting challenges that your protagonists have to overcome. Mm-hmm. So sort of in the inverse, if your villain is not directly providing conflict for your protagonist, then it's questionably useful as a villain. Right? Yeah. Well, I and mean, what's the purpose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why are you taking up page time for someone who's not directly? And is it, you have to ask yourself, is this character actually the villain? Mm-hmm. If it's not providing any any significant conflict. So a lot of times if you have a book that feels like it's being controlled by the plot rather than being driven by the characters, it's because the character doesn't actually have a stake in what the villain is doing. And they just Mm -hmm. like randomly stand up and are like, I'm going to stop this because values. And so, and that (laughs) doesn't really, it doesn't really work. No, that, that presents actually a really interesting dynamic because the entire purpose of, sorry, I don't want to say the entire purpose, but one of the main functions of a villain is to provide conflict, like we've said. And Caitlin just mentioned stakes. And the relationship between the villain and the stakes of your story is is pretty intricate. If you're if your villain is pre- presenting significant challenges to your to your hero, then the hero's stakes in the novel will be more personal. If your villain is not presenting any significant stakes to your character, then then there's literally nothing connecting your hero to the main plot. So, so like to put a coin in our avatar jar for the day, we can say that you'll notice that like in the first season, especially the first few episodes, 
of Last Airbender, the villain is Zuko, not the Fire Lord, because mm-hmm. the Fire Lord doesn't have anything directly to do with what's going on. He's like a cause behind a lot of it, mm-hmm. but like the immediate figure presenting an obstacle is Zuko, and so that's who all this we spend all the time, mm-hmm. rather than you know having a pointless like out of character flash to something going on the other side of the world. But it doesn't have to do with what we're doing. The thing you want to remember is that is the key to character building. It's it's a simple method that way too many authors don't even try to master, but you you have a character who wants something, but something is standing in the way of getting that. So your character must overcome those obstacles to get what they want. And it's in the details of the obstacles that your characters come to life. So if you do this for your antagonist, then it creates such a beautiful dynamic between the hero and the villain because you've got your hero overcoming their obstacles and growing as a character and countering the the actions of your villain. And you've got your villain, on the other hand, doing exactly the same thing, trying to get what they want and overcoming the obstacles that are put in their place, in their in their path as well. So you've got a pretty good, you know, yin and yang cycle. If we get the feeling as consumers of the media as readers that the villain is not just I think you mentioned something like this a second ago. It's not they're not just being evil because they it's the same as the hero they can't be fighting against this villain because they just are if the villain has like a real purpose that you can see that is a bad thing that would happen like world domination could be it but i don't want world domination to be the only reason it has to be world domination because if they don't dominate the world they won't have the resources to cure their cancer and live yeah or like I was going to say, what, what is it about them dominating the world that is so bad? Because you said the like, world domination is just bad because we assume it's bad. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's not bad, but there's, like, there's, not, there's not a lot of depth. I know what depth. Cameron wants to be doing. <laughs> there's, not a, there's not a huge amount of depth just behind world yeah. domination. So if you can actually say, like, what is it about them dominating the world that... Like, I just read a... There's usually a reason, just to actually bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> I just read a picture book, and I think Megamind is kind of like the <laughs> same idea, where you have a villain that wins and is like wait a second what do i what do i do now yeah it's making fun of the whole yeah it's making fun of world domination and how it doesn't really make sense that's something i was just barely thinking about but from a very a a much older reference with pinky and the brain is something i think we is is we take ourselves too seriously sometimes (laughs) um especially myself i don't really consider humor a lot but that is also a valid point when we're discussing, you know, world domination, sometimes that can actually be a humorous endeavor in, you know, a web series or a comic or even a funny middle grade novel or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. Don't take yourselves too seriously. Sometimes yeah. you can have a villain who is hilariously failing at their attempts to take over the world for no particular reason other than to just take over the world. If you do it, with class and style and, you know, pomp and circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> All of those examples are very self-aware. They're deliberately yeah. making fun of the trope. That, what does the villain do? They take over the world. Why? We don't know. And they're aware of that and they're doing yeah. it. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to do that with someone who doesn't know, I mean, you think you can still play that for laughs, but if you're not playing it for laughs, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In response to the do villains always need to be interesting, though, I'm actually going to say not really, because I was thinking about The Dream Thieves by Maggie C. Fodder, because as we all know, I love Maggie C. Fodder and I bring her up oh, all yeah. the time. But The Dream Thieves has this villain, Kavinsky, who is the worst. I would never read a book about him. He just sucks. I like. I don't want to spend any more time in his presence than absolutely necessary. But I think he makes a really good villain because of the things that he says about Ronan, who I think you could argue is the main character of that book. Like, by talking about 
by showing the relationship between Kavinsky and Ronan, we learn a quadrillion things about Ronan that we wouldn't have known if Kavinsky wasn't there. And so he serves a villainous purpose by revealing things about the hero. And I think if you do it that way, you're going to have a stronger villain. And also it's okay if your villain is just not fun. And I mean, I think there's a difference in their own life that are the same way. They're not crazy and bizarre, but they have cross purposes to ours. And so they're kind of villainous in our story. But even little things that, yeah, the character doesn't have to be bizarre or super strange. Little things like being kind of passive aggressive sometimes can make a good villain too. I think there's a big difference between being fun and being interesting. Yeah. I mean, every, every human being is interesting. Every human has aspects about their lives. Christine does not agree with that statement. If you, She's giving me serious side <laughs> you know. But I think that every human has aspects about their life that if you spend enough time learning about those aspects and then learning about that human, they can become interesting. So even if you don't see those interesting things on the page, as a writer, you need to know what those interesting things are. You need to know those intricacies about your own character because that is going to inform everything that that character does throughout the entire book. It's vital to the growth of both your your antagonist and your protagonist. You would say even if even if the interesting stuff doesn't make it onto the page because you know the interesting stuff, it will make the villain work in the story. Mm. Yeah. You don't ever want a cardboard cutout of a character yeah. anywhere in any book. And I think if you don't know those interesting side things about your character, like what it is they want in life. And... If it's a cardboard cutout in your mind, good luck making it not look like yeah. a cardboard cutout. On the exactly. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about the, the lioness quartet that I loved when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And as I was thinking about it, I don't know that any of the villains in that were really super compelling or interesting, but the, the threats that they posed were really personal to Alana, the main mm-hmm. character. And that's what made them scary. And that might be a genre thing because the Linus Quartet is young YA slash. It's middle. Grade. I would almost put it in. Well, it's not though. I know, but it, it reads not. like middle grade. <laughs> the, the, the industry has changed since those yes, came out. I know. But, um, it does almost read like middle grade and has some pretty serious romance stuff in it that is not appropriate for me. Oh grade. yeah, that happens. I yeah, yeah. About there's that. a lot of that actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, as I was saying, the villains in that because they post threats to people that Alana loves and is going after them and she has to protect them. That's what makes them com- the story compelling and makes Lena compelling as a protagonist. But I wouldn't say that they have a whole bunch of stuff that's on the page. That's really interesting about them in the book. Yeah, that that's a really sense. good point. And so we're basically already talking about this, but how do you go about creating an interesting villain for your story in particular? I just think about the line from Harry Potter with the prophecy, right? About Voldemort and Harry and Harry, and it's neither can live while the other survives. I don't think that's necessarily the stakes that have to be there to make a, the character, your villain, like interesting and, and worthwhile. But I think we have to know why your villain is at odds with the hero and what's going to happen if one side wins and what's going to happen if one side loses and what's keeping them locked in there. That's That relates to an episode we recorded with yeah. Captain Purdy about Crucibles. Yeah. So go listen to that if you want to hear more about locking your villain and your hero into a box, yes. making them fight it out, cage style. Like, especially with the Voldemort example, one of the things that makes that chosen one prophecy really pay off in the end is that it turns out that, yes, there was a prophecy, but the fact that it's Harry was still Voldemort's mm-hmm. choice, right? Like, if it was... You know, we kind of gotten by... Like, I was thinking, like, you go back all the way to the first book, you don't know about the prophecy at that point, right? That's only a later reveal. Yeah, so there's no prophecy at that point. And Voldemort only appears in the book when he's directly relevant, but you can 
But when he appears, there's dramatic, immediate impact on the scene that he's in. Well, he killed Harry's parents. Yeah, they're so, so super like, like, big, emotional. Like, like, like you know, from the get-go, you can see exactly why these... At least, you can see exactly why Harry would care about Voldemort. Spoiler and, uh, alert, James and Lily Potter are dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you find that out, like, in the first <laughs> I know. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is they're not just chance. They're not just thrown together accidentally, but they have interactions right, so that think- go someplace. I'm going to pull on Aragon, which I don't know if we've talked about in a long time. But there's a difference there between, like, you have the exact relationship between... The relationship between Voldemort and Harry is extremely close, even at the beginning of the very first book, even if Harry doesn't know it yet, in comparison to the very... Albatorx is the evil Dark Lord, and Aragon kind of just happens to be the person who can maybe fight him. And so, but there's no direct personal link. Even through most of the series, which you know, we can stop talking about that, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is perhaps neither here nor there. But I think the, con- I think the contrast. Is I think what you guys are talking about is that it can't be a coincidence that the two are thrown together. Yeah. There needs to be uh, motivation and stakes and circumstances that push them together and force them to face each other. And even if it's coincidence, which it sometimes it can, can be, it's gotta have some sort of emotional connection. Like I need to know why why it's these two people. I think another thing that can help your villain become more interesting is creating sympathy for that character. Because even if you don't want this character to rule the world or I don't know, I'm trying to think of something else in blanking. You don't really win the hunger games. Win the hunger games. Yeah. You don't want um, Zuko to kill Aang or to take him back to his father. But with Zuko, especially though, you could argue he's not really a villain. He's the um, villain in the first season. He, he is. He's the villain sure. of the first season. And even the second season for some of it. Yeah. He's a villainous. Yeah. There's a lot of sympathy created because you can see why he wants Aang. And so if you can identify on any level with the villain and say, I really wish I could get on your team and I can see why you want this, then that helps readers to be more engaged, I think. This is all just going back to what I said earlier about mm-hmm. creating a scenario where your villain wants something and an obstacle is in his or her way mm-hmm. to getting that thing. It's the same thing with every single character that you write, whether it's, you know, a minor character that shows up in one chapter and doesn't show up again, or your villain that's with you through the entire series that they all have to have this amount of development in order to come off the page and be interesting characters. In order to make a a good, interesting villain, you have to present that villain with challenges. You have to present that villain with desires. You have to present a a dynamic of rising and falling tension throughout your entire story where your hero and your villain are counteracting each other's actions. And all of those things will blend together to make a truly interesting villain. That is the perfect sum up for this part of the episode. Now we're going to move on to the second portion of the episode where we will critique as a writing group. Um, A submission, quick review. This is non-prescriptive. And if you'd like to, to, we try not to be prescriptive. (laughs) If you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all our notes, check out our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So, a quick summary of this week's submission. A woman becomes impressed by assassinating the old one, or at least partly, with the goal of making the empire less oppressive. It doesn't work. The empress tries to control all her underlings as they vie for power, and then they are attacked by (laughs) scary space creatures. Okay, what are some things we like? I think the premise is super cool. 
I mean, mm -hmm. you have a, a queen who's in charge of the, or an empress who's in charge of these nine planets with like political intrigue. Planets and eight. Sorry, excuse me, the planets eight. And <laughs> they, there's all this political intrigue going on. And then she reveals that she can like use this magical power that takes all of like the natural phenomenon on each planet yeah. and use it to like kill people. That is so cool. I agree. I thought it was like Game of Thrones in space. And so that was really intriguing. Yeah. One of the cool things about this is a lot of the time you, you'll see stories start off with a main character that doesn't know anything about their powers. And, you know, the, the whole story is about them learning to develop their powers. And I've always kind of been intrigued about stories that start off with the main character that knows everything about their powers, which was one of the things that drew me to Mistborn when I first read it was that Kelsier was already this master Mistborn character could always could already control all of the metals and and that was kind of the, one of the cool things that i liked about this was that this main character already had pretty much full control over her abilities well even not just powers but like she is a powerful character and i think it's a really cool thought to read a book that is about a person struggling to hold on to their power rather than struggling to obtain yeah. it because it's always harder to to defend than to attack mm -hmm. this could always be a villain origin story too mm. i don't know yet because we only read the first chapter <laughs> i found it interesting that the main character wasn't human i thought that was cool and there's this one really great line where this underling is kind of sassing her and saying you have hurt my people or the old empress hurt my people by doing this and this and this and then she says i think what you mean to say was the de devastation she caused my people so i just i thought she did a good job of taking ownership of the situation she was in mm -hmm. kind of kind of going back to what caitlin said i thought it was kind of cool how there was this ambiguity throughout where i could totally see this main character as being the you know the evil empress of someone else's hero story mm -hmm. so, but not necessarily we don't anyway we can talk about that in a minute but well what are some things that could use a second look I think my biggest problem was that there was so much happening in this uh, submission and I didn't have context for any of it. It was a lot yeah. of proper nouns and things that I felt like I should care about, but I didn't know why I was supposed to care or what those proper nouns meant. So I just kind of felt like I was drifting through a nebulous cloud of World narrative. Building. Yeah. Well, that was, I, I feel like that, that goes back just to page one for me. Um, page one was, there was a lot going on on page one and there wasn't a lot to ground us in the story. I mean, there's hardly any sense of place. I don't get any setting. I don't really get any, any attachment to this world, except for that. I know they are on, uh, the empirical star and I know that the weather can vary and that's all I get on the first page. And then there's a lot of, a lot of dialogue and, that's it. I don't really get any details about character. I don't really get any intricacies about personality. There's there's nothing really to ground me. And there's a lot going on and nothing to keep me going. And so, I mean, as a reader, as a as a as an agent reading through this manuscript, that is what would cause me to stop reading is all of that put together on the first page. We get a lot of like social hierarchy information, mm -hmm. but very, very little grounding detail for what is physically there in the moment and what it means to use there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and even with the social hierarchy, we get lots of like clues, but we don't ever see the full picture. I feel like this is actually something that I see a lot in newer writers where they're like, I want them to be excited to find out what's happening, but then they choose the wrong things to make a mystery. And so I'm guilty. I was guilty of that yeah. for sure. I think everybody's had the <laughs> yeah. wrong of doing that. And I feel like the things that propel a reader forward 
are wanting to see what happens next. They they know what's at stake for the what's at stake for the character. Like like in the fight scene, if I knew what would happen to her if she gets captured or like if what would happen to the empire if it, if she's gone or whatever else but i just i just know that she's this empress lady and then space vampires tried to kill her kind of it's it's really hard to latch on to anything in here that makes me want to keep reading which i think the i think at the root of all of the issues that i had and it sounds like the, everybody else is having is that the story is very passive there's a lot of telling paragraphs and not a lot of showing sentences that the, the author kind of struggles to really depict a scene. And so my biggest suggestion here would just be to read your submission again, read this, read these 10 pages and comb through it to see if you can identify by yourself where you are telling and where you are showing and get rid of everything that you're telling and replace it with active showing verbs, sentences, paragraphs. Maybe, maybe another lens to look at that could also be helpful. I feel like, like we've mentioned the term iceberging occasionally on on the podcast. I feel like this submission is kind of like a field of iceberg tips. There's a lot of stuff promising cool stuff, Mm -hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. we talked, maybe we haven't talked about the simulation iceberg before, but you can't you can't just iceberg in the scene. You have to have you have to show us the bottom of some of the icebergs, and then choose which ones are going to be tips. And I feel like this was this was unfortunately all tips. You have to give us context for what we are looking at. There's one really great line that says it's about the drink. Yeah, about the drink. It says Sika Numbrin lifts his glass of potent chirac. So there's your world building word. We don't know what chirac is. In my direction, dark green, never ashamed of broadcasting his increasing drunkenness. So that is immediately contextualized. I know what that drink is. Mm-hmm. It's our equivalent to alcohol. Um, it's inebriating, whatever it is, and it's strong. And so that detail very quickly allowed me to see what was going on. But a lot of the other details that we've seen are just dropped instead Except of... Sure. That drink is mentioned once, and we know more about that drink than we do about the planet seed. Yes. So I think then to kind of sum up all our, our, all our comments with what Ben said, there's a lot of good stuff going a lot of interesting things we're kind of getting a sense for. We just want to get a better sense for that. Mm-hmm. Are there any final comments before we wrap up for the night? Okay. Well, thank you for submitting. And thanks, Ben, for coming on the show. Your comments are excellent as always. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Listen up, guys. Our guests for the next few episodes are going to be a little special. <laughs> we'll be doing live shows at Life at the Life, the Universe, and Everything Symposium on February 16th. So we'll have submissions open for three separate guests. First up, author of Swashbuckling Adventures of Elosa, the girl pirate you don't want to meet in a dark alley, but would definitely take with you on a heist. Daughter of the Pirate Queen and daughter of the Siren Queen, Trisha Levin Seller. Next up, we have Stacy Whitman, editor at Two Books, an imprint of Lee and Low. Uh, unfortunately, Stacy can't do a first chapter critique, but you should still tune in and listen to her anyway because she's super cool and skilled. And last but not least, we have New York Times bestselling author of the mostly true story of Jack, the Ironhearted Violet, the Witch's Boy, and Newbery Award winner, The Girl Who Drank the Moon, and many other books, Kelly Barnhill. Woo! Yeah. (laughs) This is an excellent lineup. We are going to be live on Saturday, the 16th. So if you want to come see us in person and like throw stuff at us or maybe give us high fives, I would prefer the second one, not the first one. Um, <laughs> you can throw stuff at everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> then you can come see us and it should be really, really fun. And we're all really excited to do it. We're also, I mean, we're especially excited to meet with these amazing authors and, and Stacy too, who is an mm-hmm. editor, which is especially cool, right? So yeah, you should come hang out with us at our live show. 
You can submit your first chapter to be critiqued by Trisha or Kelly. So check our submission guidelines and get your work to us by February 8th. We'll be posting video podcasts for all three episodes in February and March in case you aren't able to come. Remember, you can watch the live feed of this recording on YouTube or you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us ratings, reviews, and comments. It helps others to find the show. If you like us, please share the show with your friends. If you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Service Podcast, or you can email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Lit Service is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye.